please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, where we will read starting in verse 45 to the end of the chapter. Before I read Matthew 27 as a way of introduction, I would like to read for you a small section of War and Peace. When Boris, now I've never actually read War and Peace, so I don't want to act like I'm this smarty pants that reads these giant classics. I tried one time and I quit. But Boris, by the way, is a young second lieutenant. This is kind of important. War and Peace. When Boris, second lieutenant, entered the room, Prince Andre was listening to an old general. The general was wearing all of his decorations and was reporting something to Prince Andre. All right, please wait, the prince said to the general, speaking in Russian, but with a French accent, which he would always use when he would speak with contempt. The moment that he noticed Boris come into the room, he stopped listening to the general who was now trotting after him and begging to be heard, but Prince Andre turned to Boris with a cheerful smile and a nod of the head. It was at this moment that Boris now clearly understood what he was already guessing that side by side within the systems of discipline and subordination that were laid down in the army regulations, there also existed a different and more real system. The system which compelled a tightly laced general to wait respectfully for his turn while the mere captain, Prince Andre, was chatting with the mere second lieutenant, Boris. So right then and there, Boris decided that he would be guided not by the official system of the army, but by this other unwritten system. I've never read Tolstoy's War and Peace, as I already confessed, but I read that section in the introduction of an essay written by C.S. Lewis. If you've never heard of C.S. Lewis, he's a 20th century theologian, author. Mostly his expertise is about fiction and literature. He was a professor, I believe, at Oxford. He's good friends with J.R. Tolkien, so if you've ever heard of the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, these two guys were buddies in the broader Christian tradition. They both told stories that they believed would illustrate the message and meaning of Christianity. So here's C.S. Lewis commenting on Tolstoy, and he says, I believe that in all lives that one of the most dominant elements of our lives is the desire to be on the inside inner ring. And one of the greatest terrors of human beings is to be left on the outside of that inner ring. Ah, but what a terrible thing, Lewis says, if you would be left out of that inner ring. It's a tiring and unhealthy thing for you to lose a Saturday of work because you're so busy trying to climb the ladder. But why do so many people make that choice? Because for so many of them, a Saturday that is free of no work obligation means that you don't matter at work. You're just not that important. 
And for many people, that alternative would be far worse. Lewis says one of the dominant elements of our lives is the desire to be in the inner ring. And one of the greatest fears is to be left out of it. And he uses that story from Tolstoy to illustrate how could a general of the army be quickly dismissed, ignored, left outside of the conversation as Boris, the young lieutenant, walks in and the prince gives attention to him. What an illustration of who's on the inside relationally and who's on the outside, even though positionally and status-wise, the general should be the one demanding and receiving the respect. So the, today's message is very much a message that begins with a question. How do we get in? How do we get in the inner ring? And how do we make sure we're not left out? With that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he is risen from the dead. The last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
Well, as we look at this passage of scripture, I would like to propose that one of the dominant themes and the big idea of this sermon message would be that you are not only allowed to come in to the inner circle, but you are being invited to come in precisely because Jesus was left out. You are invited in because Jesus was left out. As we looked at last week, the way that Matthew tells the story, how Jesus died, provides the answer for why Jesus died. Jesus died in order to invite us in. So let's take this in parts. Let's think through first, who is invited in? I said we, but who's the we that is invited in the inner circle, the inner ring? Well, in this story, it seems like we've got a variety of characters that would qualify as those who are allowed in or seen in a positive light. First, if you start at the very bottom of the story, you notice right before the guard at the tomb, you'll see in verse 57 that there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us he's a prominent man. John's gospel tells us that he is friends with Nicodemus, which means, it seems like from putting all of the Gospels together, we have a rich, prominent, well-established, successful Jewish man. Ah, he should get in, right? He would fit the kind of expectation you would have of somebody who would make it in worldly standards and these Jewish customs, rich, prominent, meaning powerful, the right Resume, Pharisee. But what we find in this story is that the way that he is included in the story and the way that he is being highlighted is not because of those things, but rather the way that this rich, prominent Jewish Pharisee man humbles himself. In fact, associates himself with a dead, imposter, foolish, would-be Messiah. And it's for this reason that he makes it into the story. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Rich, prominent Jewish Pharisees do not do such a thing. A slave would do something like this. Who deals with dead bodies? That's the kind of work for somebody who's a nobody. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And it says, Joseph took Joseph, he took the body. He wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. He laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And then he rolled a great stone into the entrance of the tomb, and then he went away. Joseph is included in the story in a positive light in many ways because he is making himself ritually unclean. In order for him to be in the story and seen in this light, he has to become a man who's willing to humble himself and actually become out. Women. It says in verse 55, there also were many women looking on from a distance and they had followed Jesus from Galilee. 
they weren't just recently on the scene. There had been women following Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. This is not like a little detail at the end of the Gospels. We've seen this actually at various points in the Gospels. Women are included as disciples of Jesus. Remember that famous story of Mary and Martha? Martha, Martha, Mary's exacerbated. What is she doing sitting at the feet of Jesus like a disciple, like a man would? And Jesus says she has chosen the better portion. Women are included. This is countercultural. Women would have been normally excluded. Their vote, their testimony doesn't count. Here, they're not only at the cross of Jesus, ministering to Jesus from Galilee all the way to his death, but where are all of his men? Where's all the disciples? The inclusion, the in of the women at the exclusion of Peter, James, and John. It's even like the moms of these people are there, but the boys aren't. You should so be reading this story after chapter 26 and seeing all the disciples flee. And then right at the moment that Jesus is at his utter, most desperate need, his, his weakest point, the women are there. So a rich man doesn't get in for his richness. Women are are getting in. They are invited in. They are seen and highlighted in this story for them sticking it out, even when all of the other disciples are cowards. And lastly, it is a Roman non-Jewish soldier who is the first person to announce that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Just start adding it up now. The guy that you would think would get in actually did something very costly to himself that would actually put him outside of the camp, make him ritually unclean, and he's in. The women are in. And now a Roman soldier that just helped kill Jesus is now being in the story. And all of Jesus' closest friends and followers are on the outside. Might this communicate something about the invitation of who should be included in. In other words, what we read throughout all of Scripture, that the how of the way the story is being told here should communicate the what and the why, meaning Jesus died for all. Or as 1 John chapter 2 will say, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Every tribe, tongue, and language, nation, ethne, every kind of way you could divide up the peoples of this world are included in the we, we, are invited in, male or female, Jew or Gentile. And so in the days that we live in where there are all kinds of fragmentations and divisions of peoples all over, not just our land, but the world, we need to remind ourselves a church is a place that fundamentally is inclusive. We should be an inclusive church. That word has a lot of baggage, but I will define what inclusive means if you listen to the whole sermon. You have to listen to the whole sermon before you read into my interpretation of inclusive church. If you don't know about the baggage, then just forget this point. But we should be inclusive. The gospel call should go out to all. There should be no one that we discriminate of based on their race or ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, a welcoming, affirming congregation for all kind of people with an important qualifier at the end of the sermon. 
but a welcoming. That's the first point. Who is all? All should be welcomed in. Inclusiveness. Should our church then be known for, often comprised of, cliques, inner circles? Wouldn't that seem somewhat antithetical to the nature of the church, the inclusivity of the church? Sadly, for too many people, this is their experience of being in a church. They feel as if they're left out. I hear about this quite often. There's this inner circle within the church. There's the church, and then there's the real power. So what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we, how do we make sense of that? Is that okay? Is that not okay? I think C.S. Lewis in his essay on the inner ring provides a very helpful word. This is another quote from that same article. Lewis says, I must now make a distinction. I am not going to say that the mere existence of the inner ring is in and of itself an evil. It is certainly an unavoidable reality of our world. There must be places where people can have confidential discussions. And this is not only a bad thing, that is actually a good thing. Additionally, people should have personal friendships that grow between one another that will exclude others outside of them. It's necessary, and perhaps it's not just a necessary evil, but a good thing for there to be inner rings. But the danger is the desire which draws us to be in that inner ring, that is a whole nother matter. A thing may be morally neutral in and of itself, yet the desire for that thing may be the dangerous thing that kills us. It is appropriate for a church to have discipleship relationships where people get close to each other. Anytime the church gets bigger than three people, where two or three are gathered, it could be that small of a church, but anytime it gets bigger than two or three people, it has the opportunity for there to be circles. And those circles could be discipleship circles. They could be community group circles. A Bible study could meet together week after week after week for seven years and then get really close. And you could say, that's cliquish. No, that's good. Praise God that they're getting so close. What's the desire, though? Is the desire to get so close to exclude everyone else? We're the really smart ones. You're not allowed to come in. That's dangerous. The desire is dangerous. Or how about those who are outside? Well, I want to be in that group. I want to have that close thing, and I am going to shout and stomp my feet and and act very sinful because I'm not getting what they have. That's jealousy and envy. The desire can be the thing that's really dangerous. The question for us as a church is, is our desire to grow in these personal relationships a desire to exclude or a desire to include? And I would hope and pray that all of us, our our natural bent, even as sinful as it is in our flesh, that through the Spirit of God, our real desire as a church is to be inclusive, that our community groups, we would want people to join us, that if someone's looking from the outside and saying, like, I just don't feel like there's anybody for me in this church, that it wouldn't be because we sit around and think, you know how we want to keep that kind of people out? Yeah. Let's scheme a certain way to organize our church to keep this category of people out. As far as I'm aware, I don't know that to be the case, but it can all be very subtle, can't it? That's why in the story that Tolstoy is telling, 
It's a subtle thing. It's, there's not written rules. People didn't scheme this. It's just the way oftentimes life in a fallen world works. We have the desire to be included, and we have the fear of being excluded. The existence of elders is another great example. It is important for elders to meet together, and you could call them an inner ring. I don't think that's bad. It's commanded. It's the right way for a church to be governed according to the New Testament. They need to have confidential conversations that other people aren't listening into. But the desire for some to be an elder, I need to be in that room. I need to be having the information and knowledge of those conversations. That is dangerous. That has happened. That's not pretend. This isn't like some far-off point. I've had people talk to me in that way. I should be an elder at this church. I'm sorry, brother, but that has already disqualified you from being an elder. That desire, demanding that you have to be in, is a dangerous desire that will kill a church. So friends, if you're looking for an elder, we prayed about this in a members meeting not too long ago. We said, we would like to appoint a new elder this year. And we asked for the congregation, for your feedback. Tell us, who do you see that's an elder? First thing you should look for, somebody that would want to serve, not so that they could have prominence and a name because they need to be an elder. That would be sign number one. That person's not ready to be an elder of a church. The church is a place for all kinds of people in society to be welcomed in, and especially those who society excludes. So the who of who's being invited in the gospel, the who in Matthew 27, are the people that the rest of society would exclude. The Jews would exclude a man that has just touched a dead body. They'd exclude the women, and they wouldn't want Gentiles in. But these are precisely the people that are being highlighted and made it into the story. And the presumption is into the kingdom. So how can we be the kind of community that we are inviting others to join us? Yesterday we had a very, I think, healthy and fruitful conversation about judgmentalism and self-righteousness in our Saturday morning class. How often people feel like the church is just a bunch of people that are looking down on other people. And after that conversation, one of our church members came up to me and said, I really think the simplest way to put it is, we are broken sinners, like a poor, hungry man who has no food but found some bread. Our aim and perspective is not to look out at everyone and say, well, we got it right, and let's look down on you and tell you why you're wrong and we're right. That's not the spirit of the church. The spirit of the church is based on the gospel that says, we found some bread. Are you hungry? We found some bread. Would you like to eat? If there's any kind of con condemnation or looking down, it's just, why would you not eat the bread? It's good bread. It gives you life. Friends, let's make that our spirit. Let's aim for that, pray for that. And I think the way that we will be able to do that is if we know what we are being invited into. The who question is important. Who's invited in? We should be inclusive. But what are we being invited into? What is the inner ring? Well, so far we've not been very clear on that, and I think it's time for us to be clear. The inner ring that we're talking about, the inner circle, is God. The ultimate inner circle, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Look down at the text again and look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The temple being torn in two from top to bottom is a clear indicator of not just what happened, but why Jesus died. Jesus died to tell us that we are being invited in, not just in to the church, but the church being the place where the presence of God dwells, where his spirit fills his people, or in other words, to put it as pointedly and as clearly as possible, the in circle that the Bible is inviting us into is the triune nature, the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the very near presence of God. This curtain, there's two possibilities. Possibility number one is the outside curtain that separates Jew from Gentile. And that certainly underscores our first point. Who is allowed in? Well, if it's that curtain from top to bottom, it's now saying it's open, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, which in the Bible's terms, if you're not familiar with this, is just trying to say God chose a Jewish people and then there's everybody else. So to say Jew and Gentile is to say the whole world. So if that curtain is being torn from top to bottom as an as a act of God, because if you're not familiar, architecturally, we're talking like the top of this sanctuary, me trying to tear a curtain, like it's not happening. It's really big. The second temple was a giant structure. So this temple that's from the top to the bottom is not just somebody kind of tearing something. This is an act of God that's equated with an earthquake. So you don't look at an earthquake and, and just think, oh, you know, just something that some humans did. This is God's presence being felt, which is why those people that are watching this say, wow, after looking at all of the things that took place, the curtain torn in two, the tombs being opened, rocks being split, this is an act of God. The second interpretation is that this curtain, top to bottom, was the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. I'm not real sure if we can be overly clear. I don't think Matthew gives us enough details one way or the other, but I think the point should be clear in either interpretation. It is a curtain that divides, a curtain that keeps one out from joining into the worship of God, whether Jew or Gentile, or whether it be priests and the regular Jews. That would have been the division. Only the high priest can get into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. And if that's the curtain being torn in two, this is a monumental theological statement being said. You can come in. You can come into the very Holy of Holies, the very near presence of God Almighty. As R.T. France and his excellent commentary, we're getting to the end of Matthew, and I'm sure all of you are like, hey, I need to grab a Matthew commentary. But if you ever do, it's R.T. France. He's got the best one. He says and sums up, the tearing of the curtain suggests that as Jesus dies, there is a transfer of authority from the old temple-focused regime, the one he writes in quotes, the one that was responsible for the death of Jesus, to now the shortly soon-to-be-vindicated Son of Man, 
A transfer of authority from the old temple regime to the new son of man taking that place. The result of this, this is the main reason why I wanted to quote this, the result of this, the result of the tearing of the temple is that now access to God would no longer be through the old discredited system of sacrifices, but now through Jesus Christ himself, and more specifically through his death on the cross as he gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the access. He is the way to heaven. He is the one who tears apart the temple through his death. He is the new temple himself, his body. And therefore, this means it is a new creation all over again. Friends, if if this is not sinking in, one of the things I just wanted to do at this point in the sermon is just say, this is going to help you understand your whole Bible. If you can make sense of the temple being torn from top to bottom, the whole Bible, it begins and ends. Just read the first couple chapters of the Bible, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then read the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Revelation 21 and 22. In the middle of that, what makes the beginning to the end is Jesus dying on a cross, tearing the temple curtain. So let me just explain this. In case you're not familiar, this is the whole story of the Bible. God put humanity in the garden. Read Genesis 2 carefully. He put Adam in. Adam was made outside the garden, but he was placed and put in. God's desire is to be near us so that we could be in the inner circle of God's presence. Read Genesis 3 closely and you'll notice it'll say that they were walking with God, talking with him. It was like they were friends with God. And they were to function as priests would function, being in the holy of holies, that special place, that inner circle. But because of the rebellion and sin, in Genesis chapter 3, the very end of it, here's what is read. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. They now know good and evil. And now unless they reach out their hand and they then take of the tree of life and eat and they live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way of the tree of life. And at this point, you could read the story and just be like, seems like God doesn't want us in. Seems like he's ready to get us out because we failed. Humans stink. He doesn't like us. He's too snobby. He's that kind of inner circle with his little trinity And he doesn't like us. Humanity was sent out so that they would not live in a perpetual state of acting like they know everything. This is divine mercy. Judgment is the way to salvation in the plans of God. Did you know that God's mercies sometimes are a bit severe? It would be hell if for the rest of eternity people were able to eat from both trees. I know everything. I'm God, and I live forever and will never die. That would be hell. I believe that's a good description of what hell would be. Eternal existence with a bunch of people that don't submit to God and act like they are gods. Hell. God in his mercy sends us out from his presence so we don't live forever so that he could recreate a new creation with new people that could then live with him again. 
He sends us out in order to bring us back in. That's how the Bible ends. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out from heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw a loud voice from the throne and the voice says this, climactic moment of the whole Bible, the end goal. What's the end goal of the Bible? What's the end goal of the gospel? Here it is. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning and crying. No pain for the former things have passed away. Are you going to see today that God does not send us out of his presence simply because he is angry and bitter and thinks he's so much better than us and doesn't want to be with us? Maybe today will be a day where you realize that God is not a divine snob out to get you, but the God who brings salvation through his judgment, who brings blessings through his cursing, who brings us into the inner ring where we dwell together forever because we had to first be cast out. And all of this comes to a climactic moment, a turning point in human history when Jesus comes into the world as the ultimate human represented for us. And this is the last and final question. We've considered who, who could be in? Everyone, everyone is invited in. Into what? What are they being invited to? They're being invited into the presence of God, to know God. But how? And this is what I meant earlier by saying inclusive, absolutely. We should be radically inclusive. A welcoming, affirming, inclusive church. How? How can we be that way? Only if we are exclusive to the gospel. Only if we are exclusive that there's one way in. We have an exclusive inclusivity. Put those two together. An exclusive. There's one way in, and that is the way in that we want everybody to go through. The door that is Jesus Christ. How are we brought in? Is it by our good works? Of course not. Is it by our good looks? No. Is it from our good performance, our good grades? These are all the things that we think about if that's how I get in in the world. But in the kingdom of God, it is not about who you know on the earth. Well, let me get friends with the pastors and elders, and then I'll get on that inner church ring. And if I'm in that inner church ring, well, then God will be pleased with me. I don't know what kind of mind games you're playing, but that is not going to work. How do we get in with God? Only until we humbly realize that there is only one way in. It is when Jesus gets left out. When Jesus cries these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has to be forsaken and abandoned. He has to be cast out. As the writer of Hebrews says, he was sent out of the city gate. And when he is in this state of being forsaken and abandoned by God. You see it again in verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not in this moment losing his, his position or status as God. It's not like he, well, now he's no longer God. It's like Tolstoy put it. 
The general in his story that I read at the beginning of this message did not cease to be a general. He maintained his position, his status, but he lost all dignity and respect as he was ignored by the captain. The relational abandonment, the relational insignificance, the second person of the Trinity never ceased to exist. Jesus did not somehow just become God-man to now just man. It's his humiliation as he's being described as being left outside, forsaken and abandoned as he bears the dark weight of sin. And so as we've read now for two straight weeks, did you notice scripture readings last week? Old Testament, Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18. This week, Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18. I wanted to make sure we remembered the significance of this psalm as Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're in the most difficult season of your life, I wonder if you're quoting scripture like Jesus is. This dude has the Bible on his mind frontwards and backwards. He is the man that meditates on the law of God day and night. And it makes him a tree planted by streams of living water. He's always got the Bible on his mind. When Satan is tempting him in the wilderness, Bible, dying on a cross, Bible, Bible. I mean, we only get one in Matthew, but you read Luke's gospel and he's quoting Psalm 33. Jesus is oozing Bible. I wonder if we are. That wasn't planned in the sermon, but I just thought it was a good thing to point out. He quotes Psalm 22, and as we read for two straight weeks, this psalm begins as a desperate cry to God from David, a place of deep distress and suffering. And as the psalmist continues, he moves from incredible praise and thanksgiving to deliverance. So awful suffering, lament, crying out in pain to God. That's all of chapter 1. I mean, Psalm 22, verse 1 to 118. That's what we've read the last two weeks. And then I've not had our scripture readers read the whole psalm because the psalm makes this drastic shift. And it shifts from this pain and suffering to this praise and thanksgiving and this trust in God. So it starts first, just to walk through the psalm. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to summarize it. Psalm 22, overwhelming sense of being forsaken by God. No relief, no pain, no answer to prayer. Then in verses 6, 7, and 8, he says he's being scorned, he's being despised, he's being mocked by his enemies. They even mock his faith and trust in God. Then in verse 11, he says trouble is near and no one is there to help me. He's all alone. Everyone's abandoned him. Verses 12 to 17, he describes his details with great specific suffering, where his enemies, he can't escape from them. They're like evil bulls and lions and dogs. In verse 17, it says he can count all of his bones. What does that mean? It's a poetic way of describing that his skin is so ripped up that you can see the bones through his skin. He's being dehumanized. He's being ripped apart. His suffering is so extreme that in verse 18, it says that if there were any shred of human dignity left, they took that away when they stripped him naked and they cast lots for his clothes, humiliate him. And then he cries again in verses 19 and 20. But then the reversal comes in verses 21 and 22, where he declares that God will rescue him. The rest of the psalm then is a confident celebration of God's promise of salvation, his confidence that God will eventually hear his prayer. That God is not hidden from his face, as verse 24 says. He has heard my cries. And all of this is being told from David several hundred years before Jesus. 
David knows that after he is saved, he will tell his brothers about the salvation that God has brought. That's verse 18. And they will worship God and everybody will be back together again in the presence of God celebrating the salvation. And as verse 27 makes clear, this salvation won't just be for the Jews, it will be to the ends of the earth. Any of that sound familiar? I want you to do this. If you're not following, I want you today, this afternoon, just take a few minutes, read Psalm 22, read Matthew 27. Just do that next to each other. Because in Matthew 27, in verse 35, we hear his garments were divided and they cast lots. That's verse 18 of Psalm 22. They passed by and they wagged their heads at him. That's Psalm 22, verse 7. They mocked him and said, he trusts in God, let him deliver him. That's Psalm 22, verse 8. And then, of course, there's the opening verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the big question people ask is whether or not Matthew or Jesus is consciously thinking of all of Psalm 22. Well, what do you think? I think that one way or another, we're supposed to read Matthew 27 and Psalm 22 next to each other and say, David never suffered like that. You ever remember reading in all of the literature in the Old Testament where David's hands were pierced and his feet were pierced? I don't. So the question I don't think is whether or not Psalm 22 and the death of Jesus are related to each other. The more specific question is when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he only saying the first part of the psalm or has he also putting his hope in the second part? The second part that anticipates the vindication of the sufferer. The second part that talks about salvation coming to all the nations. And there's no way that David in the Old Testament brought salvation like this. That brought praise to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. I think Matthew 27 is showing us that Jesus Christ, when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one, the true and better David, that suffers way worse than David ever did. Fulfills almost every part of the psalm to the T, including the part in the end, where he brings God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's why Matthew says that the first person that's going to say, that's the son of God, isn't even a Jew. The Jewish bystander, they don't get it. They're sitting there being like, oh, maybe he's talking about Elijah. Do you see that? Roman soldiers don't know about Elijah. That seems just implausible. Roman soldiers are thinking, oh, maybe he's talking about Elijah and that, that Elijah is going to come save him. That takes theology and indoctrination of Jewish scriptures. There's prophecies about Elijah coming and saving. I don't think the Romans are getting that. Therefore, the bystanders that are saying, maybe this is Elijah. That's probably the Jews spinning their heads, not getting it. And the guy that does get it is a Gentile, a non-Jew. So I ask this question to you. How long would it take for the God of the universe to start getting praise from non-Jewish peoples that Jesus is the Psalm 22 better David that suffered in a far greater way than David ever did. But that suffering brought about salvation. How long would it take? Seconds? Minutes? Certainly not even an hour. Truly this is the Son of God from a non-Jewish man, fulfilling the fullness of Psalm 22. The entire story here in Matthew 27 is telling us 
Jesus Christ is that Savior that brings praise to the ends of the world, the inclusivity of the gospel. Why? How? Only if Jesus suffers, only if he's left out. Then and only then will the curtain be torn in two and access be made into the throne room of God. Then and only then can we be invited into his presence. So remember this. You are invited into his presence now, as in this very moment. You are being invited in because he was left out. All of us need to sit there and think, will we accept the invitation? Will we be inclusive because of the exclusivity of this message of the gospel? The most inclusive and the most difficult inner ring for any of you and I to enter would be God himself, God Almighty, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what would change in your life? What would change in the drive of your ambitions if you knew you were already have in front of you a seat at the table? The table of all tables. How would that not transform some of those worldly ambitions that are driving you to your death? The Lord's Supper, as we're about to take it, is an invitation at that very table, the inner ring of dining with God. And I wonder if you will receive it again. I want you to. It's the most inclusive invitation you'll ever receive. Will you come? If you're here today and you're a Christian, you should. Because to be a Christian is to believe with all of your heart that he did all that was required for us to come in. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, come. Become a Christian. Receive the invitation. Realize that Jesus Christ has paid it all. And all we can say is thank you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now in the name of your Son, asking and praying for the outpouring of your Spirit, that is the very near presence of God as we take the bread and the cup. We want to thank you for this invitation, this invitation to come and be in your presence. And we want to ask that you will draw men and women to yourself, that as this church, Embassy Church, lifts up the Son of Man on a cross and points people to him, that you, God, would do the work to save, to save us from our sin, to save us from our cluckiness that is trying to exclude other people. Lord, we want to just pray for your presence to be permeating every step of our church's life together. The way we go about discipleship, the way we form groups, the way we add people to various programs or ministries, We need wisdom in these matters, but ultimately we need hearts that have a peace, a peace of knowing that we're already at the table. And I pray that we would be able to live that out in the day-to-day life of our church by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of 1 Corinthians, or what's often called the letter to the Corinthian church, We have instructions about this meal. So if you have elements that you grabbed on your way in, let's prepare them to receive the invitation to come to the table of the Lord. First taking the bread and reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ came, entered into the world, and was delivered up to die, left out so that the Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed and abandoned 
would be able to say, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. And then in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take and drink.